John chapter 12, verse 12. Would you hear now the word of the Lord? The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Uh, this is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God for it. Uh, let us pray. Father, we give you praise and glory for your kindness towards us. Lord, I ask that you would use this time as we gather around your word to hear what you have given to us to learn, to grow, and to then pursue a life of holiness as Christ as our center. I pray, God, for those that have walked into this space heavy laden, those that are weary, those that need encouragement. God, I ask that they would see the Savior as the almighty king that he is and that their faith would be strengthened. I pray for those that walked in haughty, uh, unbelievers that are unconverted. God, would you use this time, Lord, to convict where needed, that they would turn to Jesus as their only hope in life and death. Father, I ask that you would illuminate this text for us and simply, I ask what we know not, you would teach us, and what we are not, you would make us. What we have not, you would give us by your grace, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. So a coronation is a ceremony wherein a king or a queen is crowned. The most recent coronation that drew the attention of the watching world was the crowning of Charles III and his wife Camilla as king and queen of the UK in May 6, 2023. Per usual, this coronation was a dramatic spectacle. Uh, from the ride in the golden carriage during the processional to the bejeweled crown that was placed on their heads and everything in between. It was full of ceremonial extravagance with an enormous price tag attached. Uh, some reported, have reported that this lavish pageantry uh, brought with it the price tag of about $125 million. That's big bucks. <laughs> this is big stuff. I mean, they were sure to make sure 
that they spared no expense to show their elite status among the minority of their people. Millions watched, hundreds of thousands celebrated this royal pageantry as they welcomed their new king. I mean, this is how you would expect a king to make his way to his crown. So how does the preeminent king, the king of kings, the king of kings whose reign has no expiration, the Lord of lords, the one that is seated above them all, how does he make his arrival? Well, today's text gives us a look at the greatest coronation the world has ever witnessed as we look at the arrival of King Jesus. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 12. We were reminded of the uh, honorary dinner that was given to Jesus uh, by Lazarus, Mary, Martha, uh, and then what in the hostility that then ensued from Judas based on Mary's devotion to her Savior. Furthermore, this celebratory dinner inflamed the religious leader's anger. And as a result, if you recall, they put then Lazarus as a target in their crosshairs. And they said, Lazarus must now die because he too was now a living testimony to the power of Jesus Christ. And as we look at verses 12 through 19 today, we see Jesus continue his march toward Calvary. I mean, he keeps pressing on in the face of opposition, knowing what is ahead, knowing that death is certain, Jesus Christ continues the path leading to the cross. I've broken this familiar story into four headings for those that are keeping notes here. First, we will see the people's plea. Second, we will see the king's response. Third, we will see a perplexed reaction. And fourth, we will see the accomplished goal. First, look at verses 12 through 13 with me as we see the people's plea here. John writes, the next day, and this was presumably Sunday of Holy Week, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So John tells us that after this great honorary dinner, uh, Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem. And this was no normal occasion, as we learned that there was a large crowd that met him on his way there. Uh, this large crowd was due to the fact that Passover was at hand. And as a reminder, the Passover was one of the most important celebrations in Jewish 
uh, history. It was the most important time because they looked back as they were then redeemed from slavery in Egypt. And families would travel from all over the known world at this time to gather in Jerusalem for this grand celebration. Uh, First century historian Josephus describes one Passover feast as having over 2.7 million people there. And even if these numbers are inflated, we can very likely say there, there were at least a million people very conservatively that were there at this time. So, I mean, we're talking about a mass audience for Jesus here. And the name of Jesus was buzzing. I mean, everybody was talking about this miracle worker. Uh, if it was in our day, we would say that Jesus has gone viral. Uh, that Jesus was trending, uh, that everybody knew who Jesus Christ was. Everybody was curious to find out more about what they had heard about Jesus. Jesus has made it to celebrity status at this point. Uh, There's no denying his name. Don't forget, at this time, Jesus has a warrant for his arrest. People are looking to Jesus, not just to learn more about him, but the religious leaders want to arrest him, and then we know they will ultimately put him to death. The people hear that Jesus is approaching. John tells us that they gather palm branches to welcome him as he arrives. This begs the question, well, why palm branches? Uh, What's the significance here? Well, in the Old Testament, palm branches are used as symbols of joy and triumph. Uh, Palm branches were often depicted on buildings and coins as a sign of victory and perseverance. It was something that would be shown to say, we have overcome. Uh, We have uh, celebrated the success in our efforts. Uh, Palm branches had also become a sign of Jewish nationalism uh, about 200 years earlier with the Maccabean Revolt. Now, we're not going to get into too much history here, but it is important to understand the context here and why this is important. You may or may not have heard of the Maccabees, And that is significant to this scene, which is why we will take some time to look at it. But simply put, the Jews were under the rule of various empires for many years. Uh, We know that. uh, The Babylonians, the Persians, the Syrians, the Syrians. I mean, many, many more. And between 167 to 160 B.C., that's before Christ, a group led by Simon Maccabeus, uh, which would then be, and all of his followers would be the Maccabees, uh, he led a revolt against the oppressive governments, empires that were really telling them, hey, you can't worship how you want, you can't do anything you want to do as a Jew. And so he leads this revolt, and he's successful. 
Uh, he has different tactics and different ways, guerrilla warfare tactics that he uses. Uh, this is actually still celebrated today in the form of Hanukkah, uh, if you did not know. And upon his arrival after the revolt, Simon Maccabeus was hailed with palm branches as a symbol for nationalist hope here. The people said, here is our king. Here is our savior. One commentator writes, the palm for the Jews, emblem for a conqueror, an association that they also made with the promised Messiah. So to tie all that up, here's why this is important. The people here, this crowd that is welcoming Jesus, are looking to Jesus as their hope who has come to deliver them from Roman rule. They want someone to come in and take over the government. They want someone to come in and spark a revolution. They want freedom now. They want the oppressive Roman government to be gone. This idea is reinforced by their shouts of Hosanna, which literally means save us now. Save us now, they say. You are our king. We will do what you want. Just save us now. Then they cry out with verses 25 through 26 of Psalm 118, which says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This psalm was what was known as the fight song for the Jewish Independence Party. This is something that they would sing, they would celebrate and this crowd is now connecting all of this, looking to Jesus as the one who will make Israel, the Jews, the supreme power. Hence why they even say here, even the king of Israel. This is the people's plea here. Lead us to revolution, Jesus. Do something. Get us out of the grip of the Roman Empire. Make your kingdom now. And if you recall, this is not the first time that the Jews have tried to, uh, in, they voluntarily make Jesus their king. Uh, in John chapter 6, after feeding the 5,000, if you recall, uh, they said, Jesus, be our king now. We will. We will allow you to be our king. And then Jesus, in verse 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And why is that? Because it wasn't his time. So what does Jesus do here? I mean, these people are hailing Jesus as the king. They, they are pleading for Jesus, be our revolutionary leader. So what's the king's response? How does he respond to the pleas of the people? Well, in verses 14 
and 15, we see, says, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, stop here and let's think for a moment. The other gospel writers are actually helpful in filling in some gaps here because John just gives us a, a quick snapshot of this scene. Matthew 21, you can turn there if you would like, but I'll read this for us. Verses 1 through 3, Matthew gives us these details. He says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So Jesus sent his disciples to get this donkey. He says, go get the colt, get the donkey. Go and receive it. This actually fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. And at this time, this prophecy was about 500 years old. In Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on what? A donkey. Mounted on a a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus is here showing himself to be the promised king. He is showing himself to be the one that was foretold. He's showing himself to be the one that was written about. He is indeed the one they are looking for. But this is not the king that they want at this time. Here, the king is presented as one that brings peace. He brings peace here at first. If we go on in Zechariah chapter 9 and verses 10 through 13, uh, the, the prophet writes, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. Listen to the language here. And he shall speak peace to all the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. He goes on and he continues to explain that the king will first come to bring peace among the lands. See, kings in this time would arrive in one or two ways. They would arrive on a horse, which meant I'm ready for war. Like, we're ready for battle. Are you ready to engage with us because we are? Or they would come on a donkey, which would mean I'm here to bring peace. I'm I'm here presenting a humbleness towards you that I I don't want war at this time. I want peace between 
the people. And at this time, Jesus is presenting himself as the one who has come to bring peace. Now listen, this probably dampened the excitement of the crowd. It probably redirected their thoughts when they saw that Jesus then got on this cult. He didn't start off there. He sent his people, his disciples, to go get the colt and the donkey and bring it to him. So in the middle, amid the, the waving of the palm branches, Jesus climbs on the donkey to make a statement to those that are watching. That statement would have said, I have now come to bring peace. And the people want war. People want blood. They want action. See, this crowd thinks that their greatest need is peace with man, when in reality, their greatest need is peace with God. They have misunderstood what their greatest need in the world was And what our greatest need is. And see, that's what Jesus Christ came to accomplish at his first advent. See, I think they got caught up. And I think a lot of people, especially in our day and age, get caught up in a Christless conservatism. Okay, and what Christless conservatism says that we need moral and political religion that it suggests that everyone and everything will be okay as long as we get the right government in place. As long as we have the right leaders, as long as we have the right people around, everything will be fine. And listen, don't get it twisted. I believe we should vote, I believe that the government matters. But the peace humanity most needs is peace with God, not peace with men. Listen, each person under the sound of my voice and everywhere else that has ever walked the earth, that will walk the earth, will meet God one day. You will meet God face to face. And you will give an account for your life. And if that account is void of peace with God through faith in Christ, then let me just tell you that you will face just eternal torment forever. See, you need peace with your creator. You need peace with the one whom is holy whom you have offended by your transgressions. Humanity needs peace with God before peace with man ever is needed. And see, this is the peace that Jesus brings here. At this time, he is coming as the lamb to be slain, the one that will give his life a ransom for many. I mean, when he returns, he will return as the lion who will slay his enemies. 
We know that because John sees a glimpse of the return of Christ and, and writes the letter of Revelation. In chapter 19 of Revelation, we read of the second coming of Christ. We read that Christ will return on the white horse. So he will come back for battle. And, and he will be bearing a sword. And he will be in blood-stained robes. He will be leading an army of armies. And he will be destroying those who reject him and have rejected him forever. He will judge all who deny his kingship. See, we don't need to lobby for the kingship of Christ. Jesus Christ is king. The question is, how will you respond to the king? When it says in Scripture that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, it's either one or two ways. It's by force or it's by conviction, repentance, and faith. See, Jesus will continue his rule at the restored earth, the restored world that was created in the beginning. And his people will rule with him in worship, glorifying the name of Christ, worshiping the King of Kings with him for eternity. And this here is the first advent, though. See, Jesus Christ first came to be the sacrificial lamb, to make peace with God and God's people. In Luke's telling of this story, he tells us in verse 39 and 40 that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. So while all this is going on, there's Pharisees there, and, and they say, Jesus, like, you need to rebuke your disciples. You need to rebuke those that are hailing you as the king. And Jesus doesn't stop them. What Jesus responds is this. He says, I tell you, if these, speaking of the disciples, the people, those that are hailing him as the king, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is Jesus. This is the king. Friend, I, I hope this is your king. I hope this is the king whom you worship. And I hope you see him here as the one that came to fulfill the mission that the father sent him on, to die on the behalf of his people. But see, everyone doesn't get it. And even here, everyone doesn't get it. Quickly, we look at verse 16, and we see a perplexed reaction from the disciples. It says in 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. I want you to stop, and I want you to think for a moment about this group that John writes about here. 
I mean, these are the people that had been with Jesus. They had witnessed the miracles. They had experienced the power. They have listened and learned from God himself. Uh, the greatest preacher to ever preach, to ever teach the insight of, of God himself in flesh. But the disciples didn't get it. They didn't understand here. I mean, here they are, a part of the entourage. You know, they're, they're making their way through the city, and everyone is celebrating. You know, you got to think that they probably, you know, puffed up their chest a little bit. They, yeah, look at us. That's right. That is Jesus. That's our man. That's Jesus himself. But they have no idea what's going on. They, they just can not understand why Jesus would grab a little donkey and come into this crowd. They were rightly confused. I mean, human nature says, take advantage of this. Like, use this and leverage it for personal gain. I mean, they probably thought, like, Jesus, the people love you. Come on, let's, let's go. That's not what our king does. The text tells us, and we know from further biblical writings, that after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit, then they understood. And, and that's what John says, that they didn't understand until the glorification of Christ. Then the fullness of the ministry of Christ all made sense. And this is remarkably strange because Jesus had already told them that all of these things were coming. He had told them, this is what is ahead. But they do not remember and they do not recall. Or they don't take into consideration the way the Lord would use them for his purpose. Listen, I don't want to over-apply here, but I do think that Christians can learn from this experience. See, a lot of times Christians today are just like the disciples here. See, we have very little idea as to how our daily activities are being used for the kingdom of God. We hardly know the gravity of unnoticed unidentified, and even unintentional experiences. I mean, we, we forget, we, we fail to remember that he uses his people even when they are unusable. See, God is always working things together for his good pleasure and for the good of his people. Uh, theologian Richard Phillips is helpful here as he comments, whether we are employed in the workplace, raising children in the home, mingling with neighbors in society, or joining together in the church, Jesus calls us to a purposeful life of humble obedience, sacrificial love, and gospel witness. So listen to me. Moms, dads, Students, old, young, all alike. 
God is using your humble obedience for his glory. Listen, you don't have to figure out the will of God. You never will figure out the unwritten will of God. Take what we have, walk in obedience, and trust that the Lord will use it. Obey. Follow Jesus. Confess your sins when you fail. Submit to doing good. Honor the Lord in everything. Steward what you have, the relationships, your time, your talents, your treasure. And trust that the Lord is using each and every thing. And he will work things out. And we may not see the fruit of it now. We may not see the, the, the joy that we will know in eternity. But it is for sure taking place. Finally, in closing, we look here at the accomplished goal of Jesus. We see that there's something that takes place here. There's a goal in mind from our Savior. In verses 17 through 19, John writes, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So John mentions two crowds here. He mentions one that was with him that was bearing witness to the resurrection of Lazarus. So they're following Jesus here. So you've got this crowd, and then you have another crowd. That's the crowd that came to meet him because they had heard of what was happening and that he was coming. So you've got these two crowds here. I mean, you've got the attention of the watching world. And what does the Pharisees say? What do they do here? I mean, they're angry. They're exaggerated in their even influence. Or his, they exaggerate his influence even by saying that, like, look, the whole world has gone after him. I mean, look at Jesus. Look at what has been accomplished. Like, we should have arrested this guy a long time ago. Can you imagine the words that are going in the conversations they're having? Like, you should have gotten him. You had the chance. Why didn't you get him when you could have? But friends, brothers and sisters, let me assure you that this is all a part of God's plan. See, Jesus has accomplished his goal here. This is what Jesus wants. See, Jesus is not coming to win political approval. He's done this. He's created this upheaval to then force the hands at his time, at God's sovereign time, 
to then bring him to death when it was appointed. This is all within the plan of God. Would you see, friends, the sovereign hand of God at work here? Listen, there is not a leaf that falls from a tree without God's sovereign hand saying fall. There is not a hair that has fallen from my head that God does not say go. There is nothing that happens that is outside of the sovereign hand of God. As R.C. Sproul once said, there is not one maverick molecule in the universe. And here we see that God, at the right time, in the right way, just as he planned, forces the hand of the religious leaders to put Jesus on the cross at the right time so everyone would see. See, Jesus Christ first came to die. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You know who sinners are? You and me. All of us. For all have sinned and fall short the glory of God. And then Paul writes, he says, I am the foremost. See, Paul knew that he needed the grace of God. He knew that he needed it. Friend, I ask you, do you understand that you need the grace of God? See, this was the coronation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The people want a king, and Jesus is the king that they need, but not the king that they want. And this leaves his followers perplexed, but it accomplishes the goal intended. So how do we respond? Like, what do we do with that? And I just have two closing questions for everyone that's gathered here this morning. One, we respond by being prepared. So that's the question we have to ask. Are you prepared for the second coming of the king? Are you prepared to meet Jesus? Are you prepared for the final return? I mean, how will you respond? And the only way to be prepared is to repent and believe in faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way. If you haven't done that today, I, I encourage, I urge you, I, I plead with you. Put your faith in Christ. Put your faith in his finished work on your behalf. That he is the only way to, to bring you into a right relationship with your creator. He's your only hope, friend. 
Do not bank on your good works. Do not bank on your, uh, your, your niceness. Do not bank on anything you can do. The only hope you have is Christ and Christ alone. And if you are a Christian, then the question is, are you proclaiming? So are you prepared and are you proclaiming the arrival of the king? Because listen, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a job to do. And that's to herald the glories of King Jesus. We should not be a people that, that falls away in the face of opposition. Like we know that we have been called into the kingdom of the one true king of this world. The, the one true king that reigns supreme. And, and friends, church, Christ Covenant Fellowship, my desire is that we would live as people that are ambassadors for that kingdom. That we would not be afraid to shout from the rooftops, from the mountaintops, that, that Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is the King of kings, and that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And would we be a people that live in obedience to him? Are you proclaiming the kingship of Christ, brothers and sisters? If not, what's stopping you? Do you believe? Do you truly trust the word of God? We say sola scriptura, but do we live that way? So my prayer, my challenge, my encouragement to us all is to marvel at the reality of the king of kings, the one who came to die but will return to reign. Let us pray.